Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 4th of February 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today is Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Thank you, Mike. Uh, right, we'll get straight on here with uh, Novavax, uh, because the MHRA has apparently approved uh, another vaccine. This is uh, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency grants conditional marketing authorization for a Novavax 2019 vaccine in Great Britain. So approved, uh, but what does that mean? And what is it anyway? Well, Novavax uh, is what they call a recombinant DNA vaccine, a recombinant nanopartic nanoparticle vaccine, in fact, uh, using recombinant nanoparticle technology. This is absolutely novel. Um, and uh, so on their website, you can go and have a look and see how they create their nanoparticles, what they are and so on. It's also uh, an adjuvanted uh, vaccine. So you can find out what that means on the website as well. Um, so this is what uh, June Rain from the MHRA had to say about this. Our approval of uh, Novavax uh, and its uh, Nuvaxovoid, no, no, okay, I don't know how to pronounce it, but anyway, today follows a rigorous review of the safety. So you'll be glad to know about that, Patrick. Quality and effectiveness of the vaccine and expert advice from the government's independent scientific advisory body, uh, the Commission on Human Medicines. Uh, I'm pleased to confirm today that this authorization has been granted, providing access to a fifth vaccine that can be used to help protect us from COVID-19. Uh, we are continuing our vital safety work and monitoring the use of all COVID-19 vaccines to ensure that their benefit in protecting people against COVID-19 disease continues to outweigh any risks. Uh, we also carry out independent batch testing on all the approved COVID-19 vaccines to ensure that every batch meets the expected quality standards. I just wonder, I haven't seen her making a statement about batch testing and batches meeting uh, expected quality standards before, uh, but of course, Mike Eden has recently been talking about uh, the, the, the various batches and, and uh, how reliable or how safe they are. Uh, that seems to be a reaction to that. Uh, so, but the question is, sorry, let's, if we just put uh, June Rain back on screen there a second, because she's saying it's safe, that the MHRA is convinced it's safe when we look at the Novavax uh, website, this is what it says. This medicine is subject to additional monitoring. It will allow identification of new safety information. If you're concerned about an adverse event, it should be reported on a yellow card uh, and reporting forms and information can be found at coronavirus-yellowcard.mhra.gov.uk or search for MHR yellow card in the Google Play or Apple Store. Uh, when reporting, please include the vaccine brand and batch slash lot number if available. So let's just come back to that initial headline uh, from Novavax that Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency uh, grants conditional marketing authorization for Novavax COVID-19 vaccine in Great Britain. So the question is, what does that mean? What is conditional marketing authorization? So let's look at what the MHRA says about this. The MHRA has introduced a national conditional marketing authorization CMA scheme for new medicinal products at Great Britain, effective from the 1st of January, 2021. Uh, it goes on to say, uh, the scheme has the same eligibility criteria as the EU scheme uh, and is intended for medicinal pro products that fulfill an unmet medical need. Uh, and it then finally says, the MHRA may grant a CMA where comprehensive clinical data is not yet complete, but is judged that such data will soon be available. So, Patrick, what that says to me is that the MHRA cannot possibly uh, claim that uh, that this is safe because the clinical data is not there to support that statement. Uh, but the MHRA has made a judgment call 
that that data may become available at some point in the not too distant future. Uh, that uh, seems to pretty much make it clear what the MHRA's position is on safety. So this is an emergent, it's like an emergency use authorization. This is the same thing that they did with the Comirnaty vaccine in America, uh, some sort of conditional uh, marketing approval by the FDA. But then the press runs with it, the, the media being the responsible journalists that they are, they're not propagandists for the pharmaceutical industry, of course, they'll run with it and they'll say, oh, it's been approved by the regulator, it's safe. So there's their marketing push. It's already begun. The government is one of the greatest marketers of the pharmaceutical industry of all time. So they don't need even to pay for that by these announcements and these sort of insinuations that things are safe and effective when in fact they're not. I mean, rigorous testing, how rigorous? What, a couple of weeks, a month? The trials are still ongoing, that's rigorous. And what, you wanna put that out in the public domain and say, hey, if you have an adverse event, Go put it in the yellow card system. Sorry about that, Gov. I mean, come on. And by the way, the typos, the lack of spaces between a couple of the words in that, those previous two slides weren't mine. Uh, so just to keep that in mind. Now, the next thing is, uh, or the, the additional thing I wanted to mention there was that this conditional marketing authorization, Patrick, is granted by the MHRA. It's valid in Great Britain only. So it's authorized in Northern Ireland under an emergency use authorization granted by the European Medicines Agency on the 20th of December. Oh, really? Yes. So this is a because, European... Because Brexit has happened and yeah. Northern Ireland being part of the UK is separate from the EU, except where it isn't. Uh, except when it comes to uh, rubber stamping Medicines. experimental uh, vaccines or in ge in genetically modified uh, proteins and DNA recombinant vaccines. I mean, what on earth are they trying to do here? This is a very good question, right? Let's move on to this then. Uh, and uh, quite a lot of uh, furore has been in the mainstream press over this John, Johns Hopkins uh, report, a literature review and meta-analysis of the effect of lockdowns and COVID-19 mortality. We have the likes of the Daily Mail saying, oh, it was only us and the Telegraph that covered this and nobody else was, was covering this. Why not? Why were the mainstream media not covering this? But let's just have a look at the, the details of it. Uh, first of all, uh, quite a bit of furore about the fact that it's not peer-reviewed, but of course uh, it, it is covering, it's a meta-analysis of, of many peer-reviewed papers. So uh, that, that is the first thing. They're being accused of being, uh, well, we'll come on to what uh, the, the criticisms of it are in a second, but here are the, the main sort of uh, uh, conclusions that they come to. So while this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, uh, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs uh, where they've been adopted. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. Uh, and in the actual conclusion itself, they say overall our meta-analysis fails to confirm that lockdowns have had a large significant effect on mortality rates. Studies examining the relationship between lockdown uh, restrict, uh, strictness uh, and uh, find that the average lockdown in Europe and the United States only reduced COVID-19 mortality by 0.2% compared to a COVID-19 policy based solely on recommendations. Uh, Shelter-in-place orders were also ineffective. They only reduced COVID-19 mortality by 2.9%. Now, there are a couple of things to criticize in this statement, it's fair to say. Uh, first of all, it is a meta-analysis and perhaps some of the criticism that we'll come on to in a second, uh, which you know is, is suggesting that the, the circumstances were different in each of those uh, uh, that, that were described in each of the papers that they analyzed. Okay, that might be a point, uh, but uh, 
the other the other point here is, and it's completely gone. So let's just uh, quickly move on with uh, with Neil Ferguson. Uh, the paper grouped together lockdowns that uh, vary dramatically between countries, making it problematic to determine how effective the policy was. Is what his claim is. But if that's his claim, uh, then how can he uh, how can he actually make any assessment about about how, for example, Britain's lockdown, uh, since he was a proponent of it. Uh, how effective that was compared to other countries, he can't actually justify his own uh, position. Uh, the paper defi defines lockdowns as the imposition of one or more mandatory non-pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, by that definition, the UK has been in permanent lockdown since March 16th, 2020, and remains in lockdown. And that's his main complaint, that by their definition, the UK is in lockdown. Uh, but it, he's basically saying it doesn't feel like it's in lockdown at the moment because most restrictions have been lifted and therefore their whole argument is nonsense. That seems to be his position. Well, I've got two criticisms of, of this, how it's framed. And it's not, not so much a criticism, but the fact that um, th there is inherent weakness in this type of analysis, okay? The first inherent weakness is died with COVID right. or died of COVID. Th right. So there, the conclusions that they're coming to, uh, you know, it really depends on how you interpret COVID deaths. And as we know from the recent uh, uh, Freedom of Information request release, right. uh, that's uh, that's hugely problematic for <laughs> looking at the UK numbers, okay? So they're prob it's probably even much lower. So then the fi it really would call the findings into question completely uh, in terms of that particular conclusion. Now, the other thing is, how are you going to read that? Uh, what, what, what effect did lockdowns have on COVID or, or mortality rates? Just let's say mortality rates, not COVID mortality rates. Right. Now, if you're extending the analysis there, because it's really about lockdown policy, isn't it? So you should be looking not only at the uh, dubious COVID mortality rates, which are under question right now and should be under review, but also what was the effect on uh, mortality as a result of lockdown? Okay, lockdown deaths. So we'll be talking about that in a second with cancer, but but this is this is the all cause mortality is the is the key statistic here. And and this is the problem with this types of these types of analyses because they're they're leaving out really uh, essential context when you're trying to frame this argument. This is why nobody knows what on earth is going on all the time, and the press is just reporting and repeat regurgitating this and not uh, really holding it to task. Right. We're holding it to task for the wrong reasons, a la Neil Ferguson. Yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, that brings us on to uh, COVID restrictions. Well, in the United States, let's continue this debate here. Uh, this is a former uh, uh, Congressional Leadership Council uh, head here, uh, Stephen Duffield, and he's saying the politics of COVID cannot change without the removal of mask mandates. He's singling this out as a particular thing of importance because in the United States, there's mask restrictions uh, in most states, in most places and cities. So preserving the mandates is deeply dishonest, antisocial, and reminds all independent thinkers that the polls, politicians, and public health bureaucracy and schools cannot be trusted going forward. And here's also weighing in here. Uh, this is Marty McCarry. Dr. Marty McCarry is very good on social media on this. He's citing this latest uh, study from uh, the Journal of American uh, Medicine here from JAMA, basically on natural immunity. So it's it's pretty definitive what they're finding here, Mike. Uh, you know, two years uh, dur durable uh, immunity for two years, uh, better antibody response, 
all of this. So, I mean, this, this argument that was put forward by Fauci, by the media, by our public health mavens, that the natural immunity is a conspiracy theory. Uh, you can only reach uh, immunity through synthetic means mm -hmm. via vaccine, okay? This really kind of destroys it. Why wasn't anybody asking these questions from the very beginning? We probably have a lot less uh, statistics on the VAERS database. But uh, I'm going to point to this because now it's getting serious, okay? So this opposition to Biden's vaccine mandates might actually have some serious teeth going forward. This is Daniel Horowitz. He's a great uh, advocacy voice on this whole issue of lockdowns throughout the pandemic. This is from The Blaze. He's saying it's time for a government shutdown uh, fight over COVID measures. And this is what he is advocating, that the government's budgets are coming up for review. If they don't receive the proper uh, approvals from Congress, then the government goes into shutdown mode. This has happened multiple times in the past. It's a huge political crisis. There is a group of Republicans, we'll show you in a minute, who's leading that charge. Uh, they want to basically use this to basically hold the Biden administration hostage on this issue and basically wipe the decks, get rid of all the COVID restrictions in one fell swoop, okay? It's very possible this can be done. But this is what Horowitz is uh, saying. He's not pulling any punches. They're experimenting on our babies. They're destroying people's jobs, creating apartheid. They're blocking medical treatment for people who don't receive uh, expired dangerous shots. No exaggeration there, by the way. Uh, and they are criminalizing doctors who use treatment that would save many people from COVID. Uh, and also here, they are criminalizing our ability to breathe while traveling. Not an exaggeration either. There, there are places that are issuing fines if you don't have your mask on. Uh, so I'm not sure about the airlines. They probably just will kick you off the plane. So with everything we know about the crimes committed by our federal government against humanity over the past two years, if Republicans fail to take this fight to the brink, then they don't deserve to be in the majority. Daniel Horowitz is a very powerful voice on the conservative side uh, in the United States. So, I mean, he's so basically saying there's a fight to be had here. Mm -hmm. And who's up for it, basically? Are, are the rhinos up for it? Are the, is the Trump uh, conservative wing of the party up for it? Well, let's take a look here. This is from Texas. Representative Chip Roy, he's leading the defund vax mandates campaign here, hashtag. And you can see he's just retweeted uh, another representative. All Republicans must join Chip Roy in his fight to pledge their opposition to funding Biden's tyrannical vaccine mandate. So, you know, it's it, it, if they want to push this button, it's there. And it has been done before. But, I mean, if they got even a, a moderate support on this, it could hold up the passage of the federal budget. And then it would it would cause a turmoil like nobody has seen before and the democrats would probably nancy pelosi would and chuck schumer would declare war and they'd go into full meltdown the whole media would be melting down i think it'd actually be a great thing if this happened i would like to, i personally having seen the last government shutdowns and especially under barack obama mm -hmm. in 2014 very similar uh, a series of events leading up to it as we're seeing today um, it was really good because it also woke a lot of people up to the fact that you know, the government can't uh, uh, spend more than its means. And then obviously then the, the tax issue comes in play there. So saying, hey, why are we bankrupt? Why is there hyperinflation? Well, it was because of policies that the government did. Mm -hmm. You're having the same problems in here in the UK. For sure. So they're, and they're wanting to stick it to the people to get them to fork out, to pay for failed policies and literally blowing money like there was no tomorrow, just throwing tens of billions around on programs and no one's seen any results whatsoever on it. it. All it's done is 
plunge the country into debt. And so it's you, making some people richer, though. It, oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're lucky enough to be involved in the COVID economy, mm. uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. So it, this will be very interesting to see uh, if this actually happens over the next month. OK, so we're talking about all cause mortality and uh, we're talking about the effect of lockdown. Uh, it seems like the government has decided that because they have completely destroyed the NHS, uh, they're now going to put lots more money into, uh, well, as Debbie said on Monday's programme, uh, or on Wednesday's programme, sorry, uh, cancer. Cancer is the next big thing uh, because there is going to be a 10-year war, national war, no less, on cancer. That's that's what it is. Uh, so uh, here's uh, Sajid. I hope, I hope it's more successful than the war on COVID. Uh, no, uh, as you'll see in a second, uh, we'll, we'll explain that. So here's Sajid Javid. He said, let this be the day where we declare a national war on cancer. We have published the call for evidence for a new 10-year cancer plan for England. It's not for the other nations, as we'll come on to, but uh, it's for England. A searching new vision for how we can lead the world in cancer care. How do you think we're going to lead the world in cancer care, Patrick? Um, well, let, we'll tell you, because here it is. The plan will show how we're learning the lessons from the pandemic and apply them to improving cancer services over the next decade. It will take a far-reaching look at how we want cancer care to be in 2032, 10 years from now, looking at all stages from prevention to diagnosis, to treatment, and to vaccines. That'll take them about that long to get through the NHS waiting, the current waiting list. No, no, it won't, because all those people will be dead before the end of the year. Don't worry. Oh, uh, so maybe that's the plan. That is the plan, of course. Uh, we want to hear views from far and wide to help us shape this work. Please join us in this effort so fewer people face the heartache of losing a loved one to this wretched disease. This man is a hypocrite. He was in the mail today uh, because he was uh, crying tears over his father. I'm very sorry his father passed away from cancer, but the point is he has stood by while thousands of people has passed away from cancer in the last two years, well, so at least while he was responsible and his predecessor, Matt Hancock, before that, while thousands of people have passed away from cancer through not getting the treatment that they needed uh, in the National Health Service because the National Health Service was redeployed and fixated on one thing. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a quiet ticking bomb, Mike. Um, those thousands or tens of thousands or whatever, those numbers are just going to be compounded over the next six months, over the next year, over the next three years. Where do you draw the line on this, basically freezing the NHS and turning it into a COVID-only yes. health service? I mean, where does, where does the timeline end on the fallout from that? It, I'm, it, I'm telling you, it, it, it can push you right past 2032. Yes. So. so let's just briefly look at some of the past headlines on this topic. So here's the British Medical Journal. COVID-19 early stage cancer diagnoses fell by a third in first lockdown. Uh, UK cancer care threatened by government incompetence from the Lancet. Uh, prostate cancer diagnoses plunged 54% in first lockdown from, uh, that's the I, uh, World Cancer Day. Fears of mental health time bomb as cancer waiting lists continue to grow from the Edinburgh News. It, it is just all the way through the, the, the mainstream press. Uh, but, you know, certain government secretaries of state have the, the, the brass neck to get up and say, we're going to deal with the problem. Well, you've created the problem in the first place. You've, you're justifying dealing with it by the problem that you created. This is absolute problem reaction solution, to use the term. Whenever you see the government saying they're declaring war on anything, whether it's war on drugs, war on poverty, war on COVID, War on cancer, okay, you, you know, basically that- They're setting up a new Ponzi scheme, basically. It, it's a massive distraction. Yes. And so in this case, 
clearly he's trying to basically deflect from something that is actually a serious problem under his watch, well, the, under well, his government's responsibility. Well, that's absolutely true, Patrick. But as well as that, there's money going into this, mm. you know, huge amounts of money going into this. Oh, so yeah. again, you know, over the next period of time, we're going to have uh, new vaccines being developed, new uh, surveillance, new biosurveillance, new biosecurity policies coming in, well, the, it, uh, and, it's a and very mass big, testing for cancer. It's a big business in America, obviously, if uh, the, the business model has been tried and tested, a, a man of Deutsche Bank, he would be able to tell you that's the case. Uh, basically, what you do is then you try to bankrupt families uh, in order to, uh, in the final years of their life through chemotherapy mm. and through all these other expensive cancer treatments. All it does is bankrupt families and it doesn't necessarily extend the life of most of the people receiving these treatments. It's a gamble. You roll the dice and they, the oncologist will tell you, ah, you got a 30% chance. Mm. Ah, you got a 15% chance. Oh, a stem cell uh, treatment, maybe that will work. Oh, that's only a couple of hundred thousand. Okay, you might need some finance for that. That's the business model for this industrial complex. Mm. Very, very successful. It's made a lot of people rich around the world. And so it looks like they want to uh, ramp that one up. So let's uh, move over to Canada then, Patrick, and uh, the latest on the truckers. Right. So the trucking movement, as you'll see, uh, is gone kind of international. Uh, let's take a look at uh, what's going on here. Put the maple leaf there because this is really the symbol. It all started mm -hmm. in Canada. They're going strong in Ottawa. I don't. We, we don't need to tell you too much about that. Just go open up any Twitter or Telegram feed or check out Facebook and you'll see uh, YouTube. You'll see up to the minute uh, footage all the way. YouTube is very busy scrubbing all of this mm. uh, stuff as well. They're claiming it's right wing and so forth. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the Freedom Convoy is going global. Look at this. France, uh, the Netherlands, there's there's one going on there. I think there's most European countries, there's something happening. You can see Hungary there. Look at that. They put the Canadian maple leaf flag up with their flags, which I think is uh, very good. So in the UK as well, you've got some more details about this. As well, so you know how much traction is any of these going to get in you know a country like the UK, for instance? Well, it's much harder in the UK because you know in the United States, Canada truckers are tend to be self-employed. They've got their own rigs, uh, and so they can go and do what they like. In the UK, many more truckers are sort of employed by some of the big uh, distribution companies, so it's harder for them. But there are still independent. Uh, uh, truckers out there, and I'm sure they'll be out uh, this weekend. Yeah, so it's interesting to see how this whole movement has gone international here. And so let's check out here. Yeah, if you want to find out what's going on around Europe, check out this. Uh, they're keeping tabs on this. This is European Freedom Convoy 2022. They've got updates from all the different countries. So you can see all the flags represented there. So, you know, there's a lot going on. Even if it's not as big as what's going on in Canada, there's there's a lot going on. Which, what it, what's significant about this is how it's networked up uh, globally. I think this is really unprecedented, actually. So keep an eye on that. That's going to be interesting. But this is where this issue is getting very real indeed. This isn't just people squatting around the Capitol building, having street parties, which will show uh, in Ottawa, in Canada. No, they're going for U.S.-Canada border crossing here, Montana and Alberta. Look at this. And it's been very successful. They've held the line, more or less. They've accused them of uh, blocking emergency vehicles, all sorts of things. That wasn't true. That was fake news. There, there was space for EMS and, and uh, essential uh, vehicles and emergency vehicles to, to pass through. So they tried to demonize them. They've tried to call them far right and everything. But the, the, the voice 
of these truckers, of these protesters. They don't want vaccine mandates. They want it lifted. They want it lifted now, and it's being heard. Uh, Saskatchewan, another big province uh, in Canada, big geographically, of course, not population-wise, they've announced they're lifting all restrictions. So, so you know, there is some uh, local autonomy, regional autonomy on the provincial level in Canada. So you you have this sort of situation. If this happens in a few other provinces, then, you know, Trudeau is really in trouble because he's taken this hardline stance mm. saying that these are all cranks and crackpots and far-right racists. He's used every sort of uh, epithet in the book. Um, but so anyway, it's very successful so far. I mean, very impressive how well organized they are. They're holding their press conferences. They've kicked out the mainstream media because they've been uh, putting out fake news about the movement. So they're inviting alternative media and, and some mainstream if they're friendly and they're not doing propaganda. I'm sure there's a seat there, but very well organized. They've got it broken up into uh, basically by province. So sub organizations and it's fairly decentralized. Um, they're very clear on their mission. It's very simple, very clear cut. They want an end to uh, all COVID uh, uh, mandates and vaccine mandates. So look, it's looking good. So you probably noticed, uh, some people noticed, uh, Justin Trudeau went into hiding. Now the, the fact checkers tried to uh, debunk this saying he didn't actually go into hiding. He, he left for his safety. Okay, it's the same thing. Justin Trudeau fled into hiding as soon as the truckers rolled in last week. As we as we showed on the program last Friday. Well, what was he afraid of? He was afraid of actually having to face his electorate and go out and like actually go and have a dialogue with his own citizens. I think, and it was also he was scared because Native Americans started joining in with the truckers who are meant to be racists and far right extremists. And of course, you've got a full rainbow coalition going there. So this, so Trudeau, uh, that he was eventually found in his cabin. Uh, in Tofino or something like that. People located him. So the gig was up and they, they, the government came and put a, a, a nice shiny mahogany pulpit in front of the house with a microphone. I mean, it's so incredible. And then he went on to cast, castigate all the truckers, all the protesters, you know, a good portion of his own population. He called them deplorable and beyond redemption. Okay, we've got that video clip. In case you haven't seen this yet, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, here's Justin Trudeau. Canadian Prime Minister. I know you're wondering about what you saw in our capital city this weekend. As my friend Erwin Kotler said on Saturday, freedom of expression, assembly and association are cornerstones of democracy, but Nazi symbolism, racist imagery and desecration of war memorials are not. It is an insult to memory and truth. Hate can never be the answer. Over the past few days, Canadians were shocked and frankly disgusted by the behavior displayed by some people protesting in our nation's capital. I want to be very clear. We are not intimidated by those who hurl insults and abuse at small business workers and steal food from the homeless. We won't give in to those who fly racist flags. We won't cave to those who engage in vandalism or dishonor the memory of our veterans. Sorry, 
We won't be intimidated. Is that the royal? We, we, but he said, we won't be intimidated, but he ran away. But he ran, exactly. So uh, he basically told a whole string of lies there. Pretty incredible. Mm. Uh, there was no, they didn't steal food from the homeless. Truckers are actually feeding the homeless mm. in Ottawa. If you go look at the actual reports, uh, the racist flags. So someone shows up with a Confederate flag at the Canadian capital, some lone nut, and the mainstream media were right there as he as he appeared uh, off the sidewalk right ready to get close-up shots and then boom that went right across the global media these are far-right racists what what's a confederate flag got anything to do with canada that's anyone's guess and they didn't deface any war memorials either another lie uh, so i mean you so you've got the prime minister just rattling off lie after lie trying to defame and sort of malign uh, people who are out there, peaceful protesters. Let's take a look at these uh, hardcore far-right terrorists. Terrorists. Let's take a look. We've got some footage here. Let's take a look. See why you know? I can see why he would run away from that. I mean, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. I mean, bloodthirsty, aren't they? Yes. I mean, really intimidating. So, but look, words words have consequences, and people like Justin Trudeau and these politicians have put out all these sort of fake characterizations of the protesters. And by the way, this isn't uh, isolated to this incident. Mm. Just in general, when the press start labeling people or alternative media pundits or authors or people on Twitter as racist or far right, then guess what? Big tech uses that as the dog whistle mm. to what? Deplatform. Right. So let's take a look at what's going on. So the, we told you about their GoFundMe page, the trucking uh, Freedom Convoy last uh, Friday. So they've raised over 10 million. Look at this. 10.121 million dollars. That's enough to sustain this thing right into the summer. Look at this. GoFundMe places their page under review, under review. So basically it's frozen, but not accepting donations now. So, I mean, this is dirty, uh, I, I can tell you right now. This, there's, there's political... Political machinations behind this, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so now, now everyone's asking the big question. We've seen it in Canada. We're seeing it in Europe. What about the United States? I mean, they've got more truckers than the rest of the world combined. Uh, and most of them are independent as well. So, I mean, where are the U.S.? Where is the trucking rally? Where is the D.C. rally in the United States? Well, it looks like something is trying to get off the ground here. Let's take a look at this. U.S. trucker convoy coming. Joe Biden will ignore protests at his peril. So this is the Hill saying that it's happening. It's going to happen. And, you know, by all reports that I've seen, it's pretty likely that this is true. How big it is, is anyone's guess. Mm -hmm. And seeing what the uh, the government did, what, what Nancy Pelosi did, locking down the Capitol last year with 20,000 troops, all because of a guy in a buffalo suit and some Viking horns and a few other uh, uh, wrong ends that showed up at the Capitol last January 6th. 
that they brought in, they scrambled 20,000 U.S. troops mm -hmm. to, quote, secure the capital, put up bollards and everything, fencing. Okay, what are they going to do if this thing takes off? I mean, what if there's a couple hundred thousand trucks that uh, def descend on Washington, D.C.? I mean, that will be a crisis. The, the, January 6th will be nothing. They'll be screaming insurrection, hanging out the Capitol windows uh, with Pelosi and uh, AOC. So I don't know, I don't know how they're going to allow these trucks even to get in near the Capitol. But let's take a look at this here. So a Facebook group organized by the U.S. convoy that quickly amassed 130,000 members has been tossed off social media, the, off the platform, amid allegations that the movement was being promoted by, quote, right-wing extremists. It's the same script everywhere, isn't it? It's pretty much the same script everywhere. It's getting old. Look at this. They're, well, at least they're getting some uh, mainstream media coverage here. U.S. truckers slammed Facebook for removing uh, an, uh, a page organizing D.C. Uh, Freedom Convoy censorship at its finest. I think we've got one of these truckers here, one of the organizers who is an independent trucker. Uh, he, this is what he said about this. And look at the, the justification they're using. They're calling it uh, the QAnon concerns. Yes. So let's, let's roll this. Listen to this guy. Well, Facebook released a statement to Fox and Friends, Brian. They say, we have removed this group for repeatedly violating our policies around QAnon. What's your reaction to this and how big of a deal is it for this movement that you're trying to start for you to no longer have this Facebook page? Well, I mean, <laughs> I have to laugh about that because can they contact me or something can we talk <laughs> you know because they're that's not true um, and if that was so they uh, they actually had offered um, the administrators to remove content and then request a review again they didn't even give that option when you click back onto the page they literally wiped uh, Mike Landis and, and Jeremy completely out of the Facebook they, they their Facebook profile is gone banned they can't even they don't even have a profile anymore so how are you supposed to um, request a review or remove anything. It's simply not true. It, it's not true. So pretty articulate, smart guys, and they're getting jerked around pretty badly by uh, Mark Zuckerberg and crew. And it's not going too well for Zuckerberg. I mean, Zuckerberg, uh, Facebook have released their latest results, and, and okay, they're blaming Apple's new privacy policies for, for their loss, but they've actually lost members for the first time ever in the past 12 months. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, the... the their position on certain things is starting to have an effect. It is. And let me tell you something else. The last thing I'll say about this is if, if, if the Senate and the House flip to Republicans in the midterm elections in November, you're going to see a very different orientation with regards to Silicon Valley, big tech, mm -hmm. and this issue of censorship. You're going to see hearings. You're going to see subpoena of records, of evidence, of all the blacklists that they're keeping. They're, they're going to be challenged on all the deplatforming on all of their special status, not as a, uh, you know, a publisher, um, and, and on antitrust as well. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So they, I would say to Mark Zuckerberg and people at Facebook and all these other firms, you're doing this at your own peril, okay? Because they are really messing around with democracy. I mean, if you're keeping a legitimate uh, political protest movement from getting any visibility in the public square. Sure. You are meddling with the democratic process. And let me tell you about the, the last thing I'll say, the Canadian truckers, that you're looking at a powerful political lobby mm -hmm. going forward. They have the potential to, to be the kingmakers or to disrupt a coalition 
in, in when they're forming the next government in Canada. I mean, these guys have power and they actually have serious views on things like freedom, liberty, free speech, uh, and uh, you know, mandates and things like this. So this is this is not uh, something that's going to blow away uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, this is a serious political movement that's as a result of the government. Uh, in their heavy-handed policies. Yes. Uh, so Patrick has already mentioned one uh, UK convoy here is the, uh, the, the one of the graphics is doing the rounds showing uh, where people are moving from, traveling from tomorrow. Uh, confirmed convoy locations, uh, Newcastle, Mid Middlesbrough, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, Chester, Birmingham, London, uh, also in Scotland and Glasgow and Edinburgh. So Not just trucks Glasgow. too, right? Uh, all vehicles. All, well, yes, indeed, yeah. indeed, and uh, and also uh, Clondon and uh, Cardiff and Wales. So at Exeter and Bournemouth, of course, we shouldn't forget those as well. And and here's just another one uh, advertising uh, the London heading to London uh, event. So uh, this is uh, it, there is something happening this weekend. I'm sure lots of people will go. Um, I'm going to be very interested to see how many uh, trucks there are. It's going to be fascinating. I'm wondering whether the biker community. Uh, is involved in this or not, yes. Mike. That would be interesting if they were joined by the various biker organizations in the UK. And there's, you know, that's a good, you know, many thousands of different, uh, or, you know, people in various organizations. So that would be very interesting to see if the bikers joined in. Yes. Um, I just wanted to briefly highlight this article in the mail. Uh, the headline is Greek footballer aged just 21 dies after suffering a cardiac arrest on the pitch at a stadium where there was no defibrillator and the ambulance took 20 minutes to arrive. Uh, now the mail here is saying, and let's just have a, a quick look at it, saying the incident comes after the world watched in horror only eight months ago when Christian Eriksen collapsed suffering from a sudden cardiac arrest while playing for Denmark in Euro 2020. Uh, this season Wigan striker Charlie Wyke has uh, 28 collapsed on in training. Sheffield United's John Fleck 30 collapsed on the pitch in, at Reading uh, and Adama uh, Traor, uh, 25, went down clutching his chest while playing in the Champions League for uh, Sheriff Tiraspol uh, against Real Madrid. Uh, and they went on to say Icelandic midfielder Ella, uh, Emil uh, Palsen, 28, also required resuscitation after a cardiac, cardiac arrest in October. And uh, Patrick, you know, there, uh, there is plenty of coverage showing, or appearing to show at least, uh, the post-vaccination rise in uh, cardiac arrests and, and myocarditis and uh, David showed this particular uh, t-shirt from a protester this was doing the rounds of Facebook uh, and uh, those statistics on his back there myocarditis uh, USA ages 12 to 20 2019 4 2024 2021 2236 um, those statistics have comes from the VAERS uh, database in the United States uh, and uh, when you look at the fact-checking on this, on these statistics, and you look at the mainstream coverage of that, it's all, well, VERS is a public database. Anybody can add the data uh, and, and so on, right? And they, they completely deliberately... That's I, not I'm true, arguing, by the way. Any, I know, not, I know that. Yeah, yeah. But, but, uh, but the point here is 2019-4, no matter what or who uploaded the data, there's something to look at there. Mm. And for the Daily Mail in their headline to, to divert the attention away from the fact that there's something to look at there onto the fact that, okay, in this case, sadly, there was no uh, way to resuscitate this 21-year-old uh, on the football pitch and to focus on that instead of focusing on 
well, is there something going on here that we need to actually look at? That is pretty despicable by the mail, in my opinion. Yeah, that's classic gaslighting, by the way. If you want to know what gaslighting is, we've just shown you a perfect example, example of it. So the real story is obviously what's causing, what's causing this uptick in uh, cardio, cardiac events with young and healthy professional fit athletes, okay? What's causing it? No, the mainstream media says, no, don't worry about what's causing it. Let's, uh, you know, ambulance just didn't get there in time. Better response time. Health secretary, get on the case, you know? And they basically got you gaslit uh, over there with defibrillators and uh, ambulances, but. Yes. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, there are options there to help us out. If you're watching the program for free, we do need your financial support and that would be uh, very much appreciated. Um, and also, um, if you find our material on the various platforms, feel free to share that as you, as you can. And, uh, or if you'd like to support us via the shop, uh, then that's an option as well. Now let's uh, move quickly onto, uh, onto this. Uh, because energy price cap is uh, being adjusted on the 1st of uh, April. Now, of course, this is because of the uh, ridiculously high retail, or sorry, wholesale prices for uh, gas and electricity. Um, and uh, so the prospect is for most people a £693 uh, increase in their uh, energy costs from April to the following April. Um, so let's just have a look at how Ofgem is showing this uh, on their graph. Um, and uh, well, that's quite stark. So the average bill will go from £1,277 a year to £1,971 a year. Uh, and what's really uh, striking about this is if you're unlucky enough to be on a prepay meter as opposed to a credit meter, uh, that will go from £1,309 a year to £2,117 a year. So once again, the poorest families and the families that can't get credit meters because they don't have good credit and they're on prepay meters, they're the ones that are getting hammered the hardest. So you've got the least amount of income, Patrick, but you're going to be paying more than anybody else for your energy. Now, the question is, for people that are on credit meters, who does this affect? Well, it affects everybody that's on a variable tariff that's not on a fixed tariff, but it also affects everybody that's had to change their provider uh, because of the number of energy companies that have gone out of business in the last six months as a result of the high wholesale prices. But don't worry, Rishi's riding to the, to the rescue. Here he goes. Uh, so let's look at uh, what he had to say. Right now, I know the number one issue on people's minds is the rising cost of living. Not on his mind, though. No, indeed. Uh, that's why the government is stepping in with direct support that will help around 28 million households with their rising energy costs over the next year. Uh, we stood behind British people and businesses throughout the pandemic, uh, and it's right we continue to do that as our economy recovers, because this is all an effect of a, a, a recovering economy. Patrick, all this high, high uh, prices uh, and, and rising prices and uh, runaway inflation, this is because our economy is recovering and we're doing really well. But look, It's here, not free money, Mike, is it? It not no not it, it, we pay for that of in, course we do in of, inflation well we pay for it in inflation but we also pay for it in taxes ultimately but let's have a look and see what he's talking about here so 350 pounds to help with the cost so 695 pounds is what the, the the amount that it's going up by but they're going to give us a 350 pound bung or is it a 350 pound bung well not quite because domestic electricity customers with a credit meter not prepay, but with a credit meter, will get £200 off their energy bills in October. And then they have to pay that back 
in uh, one forty pound installment over the next for each of the next five years. A loan. So it's a loan. It's oh, not interest free loan. It's an interest free loan. Oh. Okay. okay. Uh, and uh, and then eighty percent of households will receive a one hundred and fifty pound council tax rebate in April. Okay. So that's. Uh, well, some people will will benefit from that. But what about prepay uh, customers? It's not clear how they get access to this two hundred pounds off their energy bills, because of course uh, they don't get the the uh, the free money. Um, what caused it in the first place? Was is there you know is there less gas being pumped or uh, you know so that's the question I'm asking. I know the answer to that because we covered it. Yes, uh, previously. But for those that don't know, of course, what caused it in the first place was was rhetoric over Russia switching off gas supplies. That was the that, that was, was the, the, the initial trigger. trigger. And also green energy policies. Okay, this is what's also causing it as well. So you combine all these things and supply chain disruptions as a result of government COVID policies. So one, two, three. That's your government. That's your government that's j helped to jack up the markets. So this £350 bung, which isn't a £350 bung, it's only a £150 bung and a £200 loan, that's only available to people in England. If you're in uh, Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland, then there's money being given to those uh, governments under the Barnet formula. But whether that, how that uh, actually ends up being distributed, uh, no idea. But in the meantime, uh, as I say, runaway inflation. Uh, and yesterday, the Bank of England held their Monetary Policy Committee meeting and they, their press release and so on. So they've increased interest rates to 0.5%. That was a five to four vote in favor of that uh, because they're projecting that inflation is going to go over 7% in April. Um, and uh, so they're saying that the UK economy continues to recover. And it's because of this fantastic recovery that, that we're having these problems. Uh, inflation is above their 2% target. They expected to rise to around 7%, but then fall back. But if you think back a year, they were saying, oh, it's going to rise to, to 3% and then fall back. But it hasn't fallen back, has it? It keeps going. So at what point is it actually going to fall back? It isn't going to fall back for quite a number of years. It's going to get much worse is what I'm suggesting. Uh, it didn't fall back from 1999, did it? No, no, indeed. So let's, but don't worry, because Andrew Bailey's going to ride to the rescue. Let's look and see what he had to say. Don't ask for a pay rise. Uh, moderation, you've got to be moderate in your asking for pay rises because moderation is essential to prevent any further overheating in the economy. Enjoy your uh, reduced living standards and enjoy your freezing cold homes because you can't afford to heat them anymore. That's basically the position. These aren't literally his words, but that's basically the position of Andrew Bailey and the Bank of England. This is like a rock opera. I'm, especially, I'm expecting Klaus Schwab to come in stage right saying, you'll own nothing and like and love it, you know. What's he talking about? Well, look, this is don't, a really... This, don't want a pay rise? You're pulling the rug out from under... Inflation, 7%, but don't ask for a pay rise. But this is the Great Reset. What we're witnessing, what we're experiencing is the Great Reset. We're seeing a, a whole economy transition to something else. It's not clear yet exactly what it is. We've given you examples of what it could be. Central bank digital currencies and uh, credit, uh, 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 social credit and this kind of thing. Heat pumps, two jumpers in the winter. Absolutely. So, so we have to get used to being colder in our homes. So they're sticking the prices up in order to, at least they're not mitigating the prices in any way. Make so life miserable. Making life miserable, reducing living standards. The, the, there is a normalization process going on in the world where uh, developing economies are being given a little nudge up, but actually 
first world economies, if you want to call it that, are being brought down. There's a leveling off yeah. uh, process going on, but it's only for the plebs, uh, for most people, for, for the, uh, the likes of Andrew Bailey and Rishi Sunak, of course, they still have their riches and they're doing very well. Thank you very much. They're not going to feel the pain, are they? No. Um, and he'll probably get a pay rise. How much you want to bet? Andrew Bailey will get a pay rise next year. I will put money on it. Will you? What, yeah. Whatever's left after this. It's very possible. Okay, let's move on to uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine and China and so on. Now, of course, uh, Patrick, today is the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics in China. And so Vladimir Putin is in China at the moment. So let's just have a look at uh, what they had to say jointly. So the sides, that is Russia and China, call on all states to pursue well-being for all and with these ends to build dialogue and mutual trust, strengthen mutual understanding, champion such universal human values as peace, development, equality, justice, democracy, freedom, respect for the rights of people. Uh, they went on to say, uh, Russia and China believe that peace, development, cooperation lie at the core of the modern international system. Development is the key driver uh, in ensuring the prosperity of nations. So I just wanted to begin, Patrick, by comparing that type of rhetoric if you believe it, but comparing that type of rhetoric with the type of rhetoric that Boris was uh, proposing in uh, Ukraine a couple of days ago. Uh, this was basically his words, pain, violence and blood. Um, so I don't know what you think of, of, uh, of what uh, Putin and Xi had to say there when we contrasted with, with the West position on things. Well, I like the fact that Putin and Xi weren't wearing masks. But uh, Boris and who's he with there? Zelensky. Zelensky are wearing, they're muzzled up. So I think that's just so fitting. I, th I think the reason Zelensky was muzzled up was because he didn't want to be seen in public with Boris. But Probably. Yes. Fair play. Fair play to, uh, to Vladimir Zelensky there. But uh, yeah, the Ukrainian president, boy, he's having a difficult time. Imagine having to strike deals with Boris Johnson uh, in order to get a leg up, or so it seems anyway, on, on Moscow desperate straits. Uh, but we have a little bit of video of uh, Mr. Putin. Yeah, so so basically the, the, the document that Tony Blinken that we talked about, the white paper last week, that was leaked to El País, the Spanish press. So I can't imagine who did that. Uh, but anyway, it was leaked out of Moscow, made it into the hands of El País. So surprise, surprise. Uh, they did hint that that was going to happen, by the way. Lavrov did. Um, so, but what did it say? Um, basically, it said that, you know, the Americans and NATO, they're not going to give an inch to any of Russia's uh, security uh, demands or to formalize some sort of, you know, guarantees in ter terms of Russia's security and uh, in terms of uh, Ukraine's entry into NATO. Okay, so th that's not going to happen. So really that does set things back a little bit. There's still negotiations. They've done a lot of little things. You know, they say we'll open up another NATO office in Moscow again, mm. reopen that line of communication. So they seem to be looking busy. So it's not, it's not all bad news. It's generally not good, but it's not all bad news. But uh, Vladimir Putin responded as well. Listen to this statement uh, that he gave just a couple of days ago. Pretty powerful stuff. Here's the Russian president. Listen carefully to what I say. In Ukraine's own doctrinal documents, it is written that they plan to return Crimea, including by military means. That is not what they say publicly. Imagine for yourself that Ukraine and NATO members will begin military operations in Crimea. What do we do? Go to war with the NATO bloc? Has anyone thought about that? Ignoring our concerns, the US and NATO refer to the right of states to freely choose how to ensure their security. But it's not just about giving someone this right. 
After all, this is only one part of the well-known formula for the indivisibility of security. The second integral part says that one should not allow the strengthening of anyone's security at the expense of the security of other states. So that's, the, that's, the, that's Russia's general line yes. uh, from the beginning. Yes. So they're pretty much sticking to it. Very predictable. Uh, no surprises there. So, uh, but the, the the Crimea comment is is very telling. Okay, so retaking Crimea by force. Okay, oh, now, granted, that's a faction, probably a more hawkish faction within Ukrainian, uh, the political uh, setup there. Uh, not everybody would agree with that, but it is in the literature. Mm. Okay, so um, I'm sure that that was egged on by NATO and by Western. Uh, representatives working with those types of factions mm. in the Ukraine. So, but it's not good. It's not good. Good to see that written on paper. I mean, how is that going to play out? I mean, yes. So, you know, you're looking at a serious conflict if, if that was the case. So he's making a valid point. But this is what we're seeing in the mainstream press over the last 48 hours. A lot of cyber attack stories. Look at this. U.S. officials prepare for potential Russian cyber attacks as Ukraine's standoff continues. Mind you, CNN, take it with a pinch of salt. It's probably straight out of the CIA or the Pentagon. And here we go, New York Times, U.S. sends top security official to help NATO brace brace for uh, Russian cyber attacks. Wow, they're deploying their, be their best and their brightest uh, to go over there to, uh, to what, Belgium? And uh, make sure the uh, IT department's all secure, right? Yes. Over there with, uh, with Jan Stoltenberg's uh, Team. And, and here we go. Global news. Russian cyber threat compounds tensions in Ukraine as invasion worries grow. So cyber, cyber, cyber. Okay, so the United States wants to, some senators are pushing for the mother of all sanctions. They want to do preemptive sanctions. Mm. They're saying that, well, let's not wait for Vladimir Putin to invade that we, we're predicting is going to invade. Uh, we don't have any evidence. We, we, we do maybe what we can't show you. But hey, let's just put sanctions on now before he does it. Mm. So th there are people talking like this in the United States. And if there's a cyber attack, that would be just as serious as a military incursion. Therefore, the sanctions are ready to go. So this is getting into weird hall of mirrors type stuff. The thing about cyber attacks, Patrick, is you know if you've got a tank on one side of a border and you lob something across the border, it's pretty clear what happened there, right? But with a cyber attack, You've got to take somebody's word for it. So you've got to have you're going to have Jens Stoltenberg or, or standing up and saying the Russians have carried out a cyber attack. And of course, actually, we have no way of confirming that because it could very well have been uh, the CIA that ran the cyber attack and blamed it on the Russians. Vault Seven, WikiLeaks files, Vault Seven. Exactly. Show CIA has the tools to do major cyber attacks and then put the fingerprints of another foreign actor on it to make it look like that it was done by the Russians, for instance, or the Iranians, or the North Koreans. That's basically what happened with the DNC uh, uh, hack, mm -hmm. supposed hack, and CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike, this private firm uh, that's uh, used by the FBI, came in and they said, oh, there's a Russian Cyrillic uh, characters in there. Must have been the Russians. That was enough to trigger a massive FBI yeah. indictment and then the whole uh, Mueller probe and all the rest of it. So, I mean, yeah, with cyber, okay, they had a hack. Uh, supposedly a cyber attack in Ukraine, remember a couple of weeks ago? Yes. Hitting, taking down Ukrainian government websites. Yes. They said it was the Russians. Yes. Guess who they had to call to validate? The, the Who were the experts that they called? Microsoft. So Microsoft came in as, as one of the teams to validate 
uh, when the experts uh, to validate that it, it was it was a major hack and it, and they didn't say specifically it came from Russia, but the media and the intelligence services basically filled in those blanks. Right. So, so basically, it's just it's a narrative, it's a narrative, and so you don't know. So could we go to war based on a cyber attack? I think based on what we've seen and Klaus Schwab's cyber polygon drill, mm. uh, I think it's very possible in the future that we're looking at this is a very distinct possibility. War could be declared over a cyber attack. So, but uh, further on this issue here, look at this. So the gatekeepers have been mobilized. This is the Washington Post. They're all panicking. What are they panicking about, Mike? Well, uh, this is from, she's the Washington Post uh, national correspondent here, uh, Felicia. Uh, Son Mez and uh, today's White House and State Department briefings. She's talking about yesterday. Yeah. Reporters pressed for evidence to back up the U.S. government statements about recent events in Syria and Russia, respectively. In response, officials suggested that those reporters might be more inclined to believe ISIS or the Kremlin. So basically, that's the Washington Post mobilized the gatekeepers to attack any reporters who are questioning U.S. Uh, State Department officials regarding what happened in Syria yesterday and uh, reports about a Russian false flag. Right. Unbelievable. So in, now the Russian false flag story is incredible. So Matt Lee from the Associated Press, he's in the White House press pool. He's notorious for challenging the government on these points. And so he's going to challenge Ned Price, who's the sort of the Ivy Leaguer uh, fraternity uh, guy uh, for, for Biden here, trying to talk his way out of this particular one. But listen, this is an epic exchange uh, here with Matt Lee challenging Ned Price. Let's listen to this. Uh, we told you a few weeks ago that we have information indicating Russia also has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. So that, Matt, to your question, is an action that Russia has already well, taken. It's an action that you say that they have taken, but you have shown no evidence to, 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 to confirm that. And I'm going to get to the next question here, which is, what is the evidence that they, I mean, this is like crisis actors, really? This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into now. Um, what evidence do you have to support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the, in, in the making? Matt, this is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have declassified. I think you well, know. Okay, well, where, where is it? Where, where is this information? It is intelligence information that we have declassified. Well, where is it? Where is the declassified information? I just delivered it. No, you made a series of allegations and would statements. You, would you like us to print out the topper? Because you will see a transcript of this briefing that you can print out for that, yourself. That's not evidence, Ned. That's you saying it. That's not evidence. I'm sorry. What would you like, Matt? I, I would like to see some proof that you that 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 that, that you can show that that Matt, you have that, been that, that shows you, that 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 you, shows that the Russians are doing this. Ned, I've been doing this for. A I long know that time, was my point. As, you you as have you, know. you you have been doing this for quite a while. You know I that have. when we declassify intelligence That's information, right. and I we do so in, in a means. We do so. We do so with an eye to protecting sources and methods. Not going to fall. I remember a lot of things. So where, where, where is the declassified information other than you coming out here and saying? Matt, I'm sorry you don't like the format, uh, but we have declassified. It's de not the format, it's the content. 
I'm I, sorry you don't like the content. I'm sorry you. I'm sorry like you are doubting just... the information that is in the possession of the U.S. government. No, I, I, what I'm telling you is that this is information that's available to us. We are making it available to you uh, in order uh, for a couple reasons. One is to attempt to deter the Russians from going ahead with this activity. Two, in the event we're not able to do that, in the event the Russians do go ahead with this, to make it clear as day, to lay bare the fact that this has always been an attempt on the part of the Russian Federation to fabricate a pretext. Yeah, but you don't have any any evidence to back it up other than what you're saying. It's like you're saying, we think we, we, we have information the Russians may do this, but you won't tell us what the information well, is. That, and then when, when, that, when you're that, asked... That, that is the idea behind when, deterrence, Matt. When, when, that is the idea behind asked, deterrence. And when it is asked, our hope that the Russians don't go forward with this. when the information is, you say, I just gave it to you. But that, that's not what... You, you seem not to not understand... You seem not to no, understand no, 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 the... Wow. That is, that is quite an exchange. I've never seen anything like that before. So, so uh, uh, the State Department uh, press... Uh, representative. Yeah, the State Department spokesperson for Joe Biden, yeah, Ed Price. So, I mean, he's just getting uh, savaged by Matt Lee over this. But but his pay attention to the words. So th basically what Matt Lee believes here, he's insinuating the government's made this up. Yes. Like they have done so many times in the past. They announced Yellow cake. Yeah. For example, you know, we've got in cake, intelligence uranium. briefings, you know, where's the evidence? And they're saying, well, well we're, we're highlighting this to, so that we're hoping it will deter the Russians. So literally, and then take credit for it not happening, mm -hmm. right? So where, where are they getting the idea for this? I think this is a bit of revenge because guess who did this to the United States just a couple of years ago? Well, the, the Russians and the Syrians did it. They, they said that the White Helmets were planning to do a film uh, in Idlib with some uh, airstrike or something that was going to use to trigger a no-fly zone mm -hmm. and to stop Syria retaking Idlib. It sort of you know, the, the operation half worked because that didn't happen. But um, th basically that, that, that really upset Washington at the time. Right. Because it took a major tool out of their box. So speaking of the white helmets, they're back. Can you believe it? They're back after a long hiatus. Let's take a look at this. So here's the other State Department announcement. At least 13 killed in northern Syria and Idlib after a U.S. counterterrorism operation. Local first responders say... So this is Al-Qaeda-occupied Idlib. First responders, who are they? They don't have first responders there. They've got the white helmets, basically. That's Al-Qaeda's mop-up crew. But Mike, they're not only mopping up for Al-Qaeda now, guess who they're mopping up for? Well, look at this. So consider this news story in the Washington Post straight out of U.S. intelligence. Yeah. Literally, straight out of U.S. intelligence. Take it all with a big pinch of salt. So let's take a look at uh, the white helmets here. We'll go back and uh, yeah. Okay, Syrian civil defense, uh, the white helmets. So they're, they're basically saying uh, that this happened here. Let's take a look at this. That uh, supposedly there was an airborne operation, US special forces come in, there's crossfire, live fire. Okay, so immediately that's somewhat departure from the US official statement. They're saying, uh, that uh, basically the ISIS leader uh, uh, basically blew himself up and killed everybody. And, and that's it, end of story. So the White Helmets said that the clashes between the US and the ISIS leader here ended at 3.07 a.m., okay? And apparently they got on the scene at 3.15. So this is in rural Idlib, okay? 
rural Idlib, it's a big, big countryside area, uh, of, you know, geographical area. And the white helmets seem to have been they've on the scene, in the house, collecting bodies, Mike. How many minutes after the operation was over? So they're able to get there faster than an NHS uh, ambulance is able to get to a myocarditis uh, victim. Well, not only that, but you know this huge part of the country where it could be like you know thousands of square miles, and they're they're within what eight minutes. So did they get a tip off as to where it was going to be? Is that <laughs> is that what's going on? Well, you, you'd have to say yes in this case. So this is the thing. So what's the, what are the white helmets doing? They're mopping up for the United States. Mm -hmm. They're a mop-up crew, not just for Al-Qaeda and doing propaganda videos. They're actually mopping up the scene mm. for the Pentagon, for the Central Intelligence Agency, ostensibly British intelligence mm. as well. So let's look at this. So Jen Psaki, uh, it wasn't just a bad day for Ned Price at the State Department. It was also a bad day for Jen Psaki as well here. Uh, the siren, uh, the White House uh, press secretary, she gave a gaggle on Air Force One, Mike, and uh, this is what uh, the press asked her. With regards to the civilian casualties in Syria, uh, is the administration saying that they were caused entirely by the bomb detonated by the ISIS leader uh, or by crossfire from one lieutenant engaging with U.S. forces? Uh, like what? Give us some clarity on that. Now, the White Helmets say it was crossfire. Mm. Okay, so Jen Psaki is saying, well, obviously these events just happened overnight, so I'm going to let the Department of Defense do the final assessment, uh, which I'm certain they will provide additional details once it's all uh, finalized here. Jen, will there be any like evidence or like release to support the idea? I mean, I know the U.S. has put out its statement that, you know, they detonated the bomb themselves, talking about the ISIS leader here. And uh, But Jen, you know, will there be any evidence? Uh uh, to support this, uh, these claims here. So, are you, Pisaki says skeptical of the U.S. military's assessment uh, when they went and took out an ISIS terror, the leader of ISIS, she's saying. And the press says in response, yes. And Pisaki says uh, that they are not providing accurate information. And the press says, yes. And here's what Pasaki says. And ISIS is providing accurate information. So she's basically t turning it back on the press saying, do you trust ISIS more than you trust uh, our government, our military? And so again, that goes back to Matt Lee's question originally, say, why should we trust the government knowing your terrible history of making up intelligence and fake claims here? And the press says, well, uh, not ISIS, but I mean, the US has not always been straightforward about what happens with civilians. I mean, this is a fact. And here's Pisaki. Well, you know, there's an extensive process that the Department of Defense undergoes, doing everything possible to avoid civilian casualties. So very extensive process indeed. Uh, let's just remind ourselves of what happened only a few months ago here, uh, the botched drone attack of the United States, where they said they were taking out an ISIS-K leader uh, but really, what, the, what did they take out? Ten civilians, including seven children. Here's the live footage here that was just released, uh, I believe, this week, or at least it was declassified. But take a look at this. You can see children around in the alleyway mm. next door. So, in uh, the just lining up here, this is the targeting. There you go. It's just they fired there. Total disaster. Uh, you know. So that's what you're dealing with there, with the U.S. government. So they're getting challenged, and uh, it's not looking 
So what are the, are the press in the United States, at least with respect to foreign policy, uh, growing some teeth? Well, a few of them, yeah, a few of them are. Um, but uh, you know, it's good. It's good to see, nonetheless, uh, because this these exchanges are getting a lot of uh, publicity as well. Yes. Okay. Well, let's come back to the UK and uh, there or so ago, uh, the uh, British uh, Ministry of Defence published their UK space uh, their their defence space strategy document. £1.4 billion pounds, uh, to what they describe as bolster our national interests in space. So I thought we'd just have a, a quick look at this and see what it is they're talking about. So they're talking about oper operationalizing the space domain, uh, Patrick. So let's see what uh, Ben Wallace said. Uh, it's crucial we continue to push the frontiers of our defense space ambitions, enhancing our military resilience and strengthening our nation's security. So, of course, this has just been released, but it's not a new policy. It's been going on for quite some time. Uh, two or three years ago, uh, the UK bought this organization, which was uh, actually in bankruptcy, OneWeb, uh, because they wanted OneWeb's um, small, low-Earth orbit uh, satellite technology. Uh, and, uh, well, why did they want OneWeb? Because they needed to update their own uh, satellite low earth orbit satellite technology. Now what the UK government has been doing is been building uh, a, a mesh of uh, communication satellites for military purposes. Um, and uh, very much, very similar to what Elon Musk is doing with, with uh, 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 his program to provide internet connection no matter where you are, okay? So that type of scale. Now, can you imagine what it might be called uh, to have a, a grid of satellites uh, around the earth uh, that uh, that provide uh, military communications for autonomous vehicles and uh, and AI driven vehicles. Yeah, and robots. Uh, well, in fact, it's called Skynet. Oh, uh, and uh, so anybody that knows anything about uh, certain Hollywood movies, Terminator, for example, gets the significance of that. Now, Skynet Six was was owned and run by, uh, uh, or at least it was built and run by Airbus. But the new generation is going to be uh, run by through through OneWeb technology and so on. Uh, but look, uh, let's go back to 2020 and this uh, communication from the then Chief of the Defence Staff uh, and the Permanent Secretary of Defence. Uh, so that's uh, Nick Carter and Stephen Lovegrove. Uh, and this is what they were saying at that time. Uh, this moment in 2020 represents a strategic reset for us. It underlines the government's ambition to lead in NATO, strengthen the UK's global influence and put defence at the heart of UK prosperity. Now, I'm wondering, how do you put defence at the heart of UK prosperity? I can see maybe two ways to do it. The first one, uh, as expressed by Mark Carlton Smith, the Chief for the Defence Staff, uh, was uh, that peace and war are artificial and binary characterizations of a strategic context that no longer exists today, but which drives uh, much of our policy. So one way to make sure that defence is at the heart of, of the UK's economy is to make sure that you're in a state of perpetual war. Uh, that guarantees that defence industries uh, become significant as regards the economy. But Lovely staged photo, by the way. Yeah, absolutely, yes. But the other way to do it, uh, of course, and this is uh, Alok Sharma when he was business secretary. Uh, he's now, of course, in charge of climate change agenda. But he was speaking in 2020 saying uh, that access to our own global fleet of satellites has the potential to connect people worldwide, providing fast UK-backed broadband from the Shetlands to the Sahara and from pole to pole. So he's almost suggesting that the Skynet and, and other programs that they're running could be uh, in competition with Elon Musk and his uh, internet uh, uh, mechanisms. But let's bring it up to date then and back to Ben Wallace. 
Uh, and this is what he had to say. We will ensure that we embed dual use at the heart of our capability management processes, considering how we can share defense space capabilities and outputs with other government departments, including the security intelligence services, as well as potentially with commercial users. So we, what they're building here, aside from anything else, is a network of satellites which will be used to control autonomous vehicles and also to control uh, joint operations between Britain, the US and other, this is what they're attempting to build. Uh, but it will be, the, the commercial interest will be piggybacked onto that and any data that's going through those satellites, of course, as he's just said, uh, would be available to the security and intelligence services. This is fusion doctrine once again, but let's just remember that it was only a couple of years ago uh, that Huawei was kicked out of the UK uh, on 5G networks because of concerns that uh, uh, data flowing through Huawei equipment was available to Chinese intelligence services. So if we as a nation are saying no to that, um, I'm going to ask, are we as a nation going to say yes to the UK doing that to its own people? Mm. Um, so the, 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 st the space, uh, uh, the, they are, this is part of the global Britain strategy, by the way, they're attempting to set themselves up as the sort of glue that binds together all the interoperability of the United States and European defense forces and so on, uh, and to create a, a, a big role for the UK, even though we don't have a Navy or an army anymore, we have, we're providing a role within uh, international geopolitics. And intelligence. And, and intelligence, intelligence, yes. Intelligence yes, uh, Five Eyes is very much uh, a core of this. In Marsat, in Marsat uh, Satellite Company, that's British. It's a British firm as well. So uh, the, the names that they have for some of these uh, programs, aside from Skynet, they've got uh, Minerva. Uh, so 120 million pounds is going to be invested in Minerva. Uh, and that's going to present the UK's ability to set, uh, to support frontline military decision making. So that's more comms uh, kind of stuff. And they've got uh, UK Space Command uh, underpinning another 968 million uh, Astari program. Uh, and then Prometheus, uh, Prometheus 2, uh, which is... Uh, going to be assembled by In Space Missions Limited in Alton. Uh, and these are, again, more of these uh, microsatellites uh, that are being used for similar purposes. All named after Greek gods, yes. conspicuously. Yes. Mm. Now, let's just, uh, before we move away from international politics, just come on to uh, Belarus here. And Neil Bush, Bush was speaking in the uh, uh, OSCE, to the United Nations representing the OSCE. Uh, and he was he was actually representing a number of companies here, including uh, the United States, but also Albania, Austria, Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada. Well, it goes on. Norway, Poland, Portugal, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, a whole bunch of countries, including the UK and the United States. Uh, and what's it all about? Well, it's because uh, they, they are criticizing Belarus uh, over the 1,000 claimed 1,000 political prisoners there. And, and I just wanted to, <laughs> because the hypocrisy here just continues to to drip out of this man's uh, brains, but here we go. Civil society organizations reported last week that the number of political prisoners in Belarus has now reached 1,000 and continues to grow. Uh, we wish to be crystal clear. By political prisoners, we mean individuals who have been detained or imprisoned for politically motivated reasons, uh, for peacefully exercising their human rights and fundamental freedoms, including freedoms of expression. Uh, we again call for the immediate and unconditional release of all political prisoners in Belarus. Well, I'm going to say we call for the immediate and unconditional release of all political prisoners in the United Kingdom, because by his definition, Julian Assange is a political prisoner. And for Neil Bush 
to represent all these countries uh, and for Britain to represent all these countries and criticize another country for holding political prisoners while this case goes on. The hypocrisy is just beyond expression. And if he is a political prisoner, that was the key argument in the Julian Assange extradition hearings, okay? So there is an extradition treaty between the United States and the United Kingdom, but it doesn't apply to political prisoners. prisoners. So that, this is why they've, the press and the, the UK uh, court system and justice system has tried so hard to frame him uh, not as he truly is, as a political prisoner, right. but as some sort of cyber terrorists, or as the United States likes to call him, a hostile foreign intelligence agency and a cyber terrorist. So. Yeah, okay, so where does that take us? Well, it takes us back to the United States. Interesting footnote here. Black Lives Matter, uh, they're in the news again, but not for anything good. Uh, they've shut down their online fundraising after an investigation revealed a $60 million ghost fund Okay, so, and apparently the head of the organization has absconded and not appointed anybody to take her place. Uh, so there's no accountability regarding all the money that they've plowed in uh, from all the various woke corporations like Apple, uh, Google, and all the other people. A lot of hardworking people probably put a lot of money into this organization, yes. uh, hoping that something good would come out of it. And they've, they've passed it off to other uh, political organizations. They've given out, you know, a few tens of millions but there's still a war chest of you know 60 plus million in there, uh, and there's no records or any pro proper records or anything done. So I mean, a lot of people are thinking this might be a massive scam. Uh, the founder here, she bought a bunch of uh, multi-million dollar uh, properties, you know, multi-million dollar property portfolio in the year after they received all this money. Right. So I mean, there's a lot of questions around this organization. So once again, sure. But nobody, they were, they were beyond reproach, reproach. before. Yeah. It's like, don't, don't pressure them. They're, doing the, they're fighting the good fight. And then we find out this is what happened in the end. So big question mark. What happened to all the cash? And uh, where is the, uh, the boss uh, there? I think her name is uh, Patrice. Maybe she's with Justin Trudeau. Patrice, yeah, she could be in Canada. Who knows? Up there with Drake in Toronto. Maybe making a music video or some movie or something. Who knows? But this, uh, the really interesting story is here, Mike. Uh, this is uh, Bloomberg. Uh, what if we blotted out the sun to fight global warming? It's risky, says Bloomberg. But then again, the path we're on may, uh, the path we're on uh, now may be even riskier. This is Michael Newman here, an opinion piece from uh, Bloomberg. Uh, so one of the greatest hopes is something called solar geoengineering, which essentially is an attempt to figure out a way to cool the planet by deflecting some of the sun's rays before they reach us humans. The science isn't quite there yet. Yeah, no kidding. The science isn't there yet. But I mean, this they're seriously talking about this. Well, some people say that kind of thing's been going on for a very long time. Yeah, that's uh, chemtrails, yes. lines in the sky. Uh, so, you know, who's developing this type? Who would develop this type of technology? I mean, this is absolutely bonkers, right? I wonder right? who that could be. Could, it's got to be someone with a lot of money, right? Right. And someone who's just a little bit sort of not all there. And uh, someone that has no direct personal knowledge of the of the uh, subject himself. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, yeah, he's just... He's, he's just, taking advice from, from other vested interests. Yeah, who could it be? Well, let's just see. Well, who's, who's actually... Yeah, of course, it's Billy Goats. Bill Gates' venture 
aims to spray dust into the atmosphere to block the sun. What could go wrong? Says Ariel Cohen here. Nice piece here in Forbes in the energy section, Mike, here. And what's Bill Gates working on? Well, the, the proper term here is called the stratospheric controlled perturbation experiment. So they want to experiment on the stratosphere. Okay. That, yeah. What so, could go wrong, this Patrick? Is, this is out of Harvard. A sun reflecting aerosols, which would offset the effects of global warming. This is what Bill Gates is bankrolling. And you can see it all over the press. So I'm going to tell you, take these people very seriously. Mm. Look at what they're capable of. Look at the, what they've just done. Look at what Bill Gates has just done in the last two years. Okay. They are capable of absolutely anything. anything. So take this dead seriously, people. You don't think this is going to happen? If these people have a lot of money, a lot of power, and it doesn't matter if what they do isn't going to make a difference to what they claim it's going to do, i.e. global warming. What matters is that they get a chance to do what they want to us. Okay, mm -hmm. that's that they can play God or they can play a king and all that. So Harvard, you say, Harvard, is Harvard really working on this? Well, yeah, there we go. There's the Harvard uh, uh, announcement there. This is from 2016. So they've, they've been mulling this over now for like five years, mitigating the risk of geoengineering. Aerosols could cool the planet without ozone damage. I mean, this is dangerous on a level that you can't even imagine. So there is an acknowledgement in that headline that there is a risk to geoengineering because it's got to be mitigated. But they are saying in the subheadline, aerosols could cool, cool the planet, so let's, let's go with it. Correct. Correct. So they, they have acknowledged as a risk. I mean, hey, let's just play around with the atmosphere. And why? To stop a, a crisis that isn't actually happening, or there's no evidence that there's any significant global warming. I mean, where is the evidence? And you're thinking, how does everybody get this idea? Well, the IPC says that there is climate change or global man-made global warming. It's not happening right now not in any significant way that they can measure, but it's going to happen in 200 years, right? And how do they know that? Models. The same way Neil Ferguson could calculate the, the COVID death toll in the UK by hitting the button on the computer of his little model, his little software program. This is what the climate scientists are all into as well. So COVID and climate, computer-modeled, driven crises with really, really bad policy. We showed you how bad the policy was earlier in the program. There's yes. plenty of evidence. It doesn't work. It's a disaster. Costs a lot of money, ruins a lot of lives. This exactly was going to happen with these crackpot Victorian-inspired uh, climate uh, boondoggles that people like Bill Gates are throwing billions of dollars at right now. I mean, really scary. Okay. Well, look, we have to leave it there. We're over time. Thank you very much for joining me today. Patrick, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.